If you've been with us through this journey through James so far, what we've seen from James, if I can summarize uh, to the point that we're at, is James reminds us we are going to face significant external trials or challenges. And those challenges uh, are only going to be, be overcome or persevered through if we have a deep joy that comes from the gospel. But James says even more significant than the external trials is the internal trials that are going on within us. He might call them temptations. Uh, The desires that lead us astray off the course that God has put us on. Again, reminding us that it's the Gospel, the same Gospel that saved us that's going to keep us growing. And then uh, he gets to his sort of main point. He says, listen, if you're going to be single-minded people, if you're going to grow in your faith then you're going to have to be people who do three things. Hear, welcome, and do. Remember this? You've got to hear the Gospel, hear the Word of God, but then you've got to welcome it. Remember the swinging the door wide open, inviting it in deep, letting the Gospel do work internally in us. And then as a result, do. Live on the basis of it. If you aren't doing those things, then you're going to find stagnation at the very least in your faith journey. And then James, at the end of chapter 1, has three particular applications that he wants to highlight because he's going to spend much of the rest of this sermon or letter talking about them. There's three areas in which he perceives the people he's writing to need to experience growth. They are, of course, taming our tongues, caring for those who are less fortunate or don't have the social status that many in our world do. And then avoiding the stain or the muddiness of what he calls worldliness. So in the last week, we jumped into the meat of this then. He's going to start to flesh some of these specific applications out. And we talked about the significance of not giving in to favoritism. Instead, responding to everyone from our identity as poor people who've been made rich by the gospel. Loving everyone equally. But now in verse 14, it's almost as if James hits pause. And he's going to kind of have a moment to speak some theological truth. Uh, He's made this first statement about partiality, and now he wants to reinforce the idea of hearing, welcoming, and doing. But he wants to do it in a deeply theological way. And so, let's read it together. James chapter 2, verse 14. This is what it says. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Uh, Let me translate that last section into modern language. If someone comes to you and and they're struggling without clothes or daily food and you say, I'll pray for you, but don't do anything about it, what good is it? The same way faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that 
and shudder. We'll see throughout this letter at least one more time. James likes to take people who think pretty highly of themselves spiritually and remind them they may be on the same level as demons, right? Which is kind of like cutting them at the knees, just like poking them pretty hard, you know? Um, We'll see that again later on. All right. Uh, Verse 20, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. A little different status than demons, right? God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, all throughout, that verse right there has made our knees buckle, right? We'll talk about it. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Fascinating. But if that's the question, what is James driving at here? What is James' major concern? Obviously, he is concerned about something because he has pushed pause and he's talking directly and he's talking specifically and he's talking forcefully. What I want to suggest to you is James' major concern in this moment is what kind of faith do these people have? More specifically, is their faith genuine? Is their faith genuine? Now, what we have to do, and we'll have to do this several times throughout this small passage of Scripture, is define terms. Because we get into a whole lot of trouble making assumptions about what James may or may not mean based upon what someone else, somewhere else in Scripture has said. And we remember, and we'll talk about towards the end of this talk, that much of the New Testament is contextually written to specific groups of people facing specific issues. And if we try to force them together without considering that reality, we will have all kinds of problems making sense of things. James is writing to a group of diaspora spread out based on persecution, a Jewish people who have become believers in Jesus. And whether he's getting reports from them or just concerned because he knows it might happen, he's concerned that their faith may not be genuine. That it might just be faith in his language that has only been heard not welcomed, and therefore something being done about it. So, James talks about faith in two different ways in this letter. He talks about genuine faith in a very specific way in chapter 1. Do you remember this? James chapter 1, he says, "Therefore, Therefore get rid of all moral filth right, and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now, he doesn't use the word faith there, but that's what he's talking about. The idea of genuine faith is humbly accepting the word planted in you, which can save you. We know it's genuine faith because it saves, right? It's saving faith. So it's that idea of not just hearing, but welcoming. Do you remember this? Now, the faith that James is talking about in chapter 2 is quite different than this faith, isn't it? Because in the first couple of verses, 14, 15, and 16, He gives three potent (laughs) 
descriptors of this faith. The first is that it's useless, right? In other words, it says uh, you have this kind of faith, but someone has a need, and you just say, I'll pray for them, and you don't do anything about it. It doesn't move you to action on their behalf. Now again, listen, James isn't talking about an isolated moment where life is crazy and you offer to pray for someone. It doesn't mean you should be paying everyone's bills all the time. He's talking, he's using a moment to explain an entire posture he seems to believe these people have. So let's not uh, take a negative or um, punitive viewpoint and say, oh, every time I don't respond in that way, God's looking down on me. That's not at all what James is talking about. He's speaking holistically here. So the first thing he says about this faith that isn't genuine is that it's, it's useless. In other words, it doesn't help anybody. And it's useless not just because it doesn't help them, but because, as we've talked about before the sermon, helping other people is a means by which we participate in the work God has given us. That is, that it's useless for advancing God's kingdom. You see that? It doesn't help anyone, and it doesn't advance God's kingdom. The second thing he says about it, and he uses a rhetorical question, he says, can this faith save you? Well, James has an answer in mind, right? His answer is, no, it can't, right? So it's useless for other people, and oh, by the way, it's useless for you too. It can't save you. And so then James gives a final declaration about it. He says it's dead. The Greek word is nekra, right? It literally means a corpse, right? A lifeless body that has nothing left to it. A shell of its former self. So when James is writing about faith here in the middle of chapter 2, he is writing about what we will call false faith. Does this make sense? He's already written about what he would call genuine faith. Welcoming the seed implanted in you that leads to good fruit. Now he's talking about false faith that hears, chapter 1 language, does not welcome, does not do. And just as he said in chapter 1, it is worthless. But it also, he lets us remember, can't save us. And ultimately is dead. Fascinating. So, what is it that he perceives about their faith that makes it false? The best guess that I can make, although there's numbers of examples, and I'll try to expound a little bit to give us different ideas, but the best guess that I can make that his concern for their faith is what I'll call it is creedal faith, right? In other words, um, they have believed the right things. They have agreed that the right statements of doctrine are true about God and Jesus, right? They have heard the gospel and said, yes, but they have not welcomed it in. It is not transforming them internally and therefore leading to gospel-centered living. This is what we'll call creedal Christianity. Why do I suspect that's what's going on here? Well, because of the example he gives, right? He says, you say God is one. Great! (laughs) So do the demons, right? In other words, James is reminding us that demons who are diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God, he's... he's, um, going as crazy as he can to make a point, right? He's saying, listen, even people who are working against God, he's not saying that's what they're doing, believe that. In other words, demons have orthodox theology, but it hasn't changed them. 
that should alert us to something, correct? That there is a kind of faith or belief that doesn't change us in any way, that can even leave us opposed to the kingdom of God, let alone what James seems to be speaking about, apathetic towards its advance in any way. Creedal Christianity. Here's my guess. Many people in the church today, I'm not just talking about ours, but my guess is even here in ours, have a form of creedal Christianity. That is, you've heard and you've agreed. Jesus, God, yes. Resurrected from the dead, yes. Judge of all things at the end of days, yes. And that's it. And James would say to you this morning, you should shudder like the demons do. Because that faith is not going to lead you to a place of healing or holistic rescue. But listen, we understand in our context and in the church, and this probably very well was true in the church that James is writing to, he doesn't just, just doesn't give us particular examples of it, that there are other examples of what we would call false faith or just hearing faith, not welcoming in faith. It's not just creedal faith, it's also religious faith, right? It says, well, I'm, yeah, I, the Jesus thing is true. That's why I go to church and I do my, read my Bible and I do all the religious activities but it's not really changing anything about me. Right? Just going through the motions because that's the worldview I've subscribed to, but it's not anything I've ever welcomed in. There's no fruit from it. The truth is that that's a form of false faith that should make our knees buckle a little bit. Likewise, there's what I would call cultural Christianity. In many ways, we could describe our country largely in this way, though it's becoming increasingly post-Christian. Uh, and I would suggest to you, in some ways, that's an okay thing, church. Because what, is ha- what had happened in our country is, well, everyone was a Christian. Why? Because I am. Because <laughs> that's what the culture said. And it's a dangerous trap to live in that. It is, you're Christian because that's kind of what we've always been but it's never done anything personal for you. And then lastly, I would say there is a false faith that I would call familial Christianity. Right? That is that, well, I grew up in a Christian family, and therefore I did all the Christian things. And I'm still doing the Christian things, but I've never really embraced the Gospel internally. Friends, how do I know that all four of those things are false faith? Not just because James said them, but because all four of those things were true of me for a long time. Until I had a moment where I finally opened the door and let the Gospel come deeply into my heart and profoundly change me. Which began with me admitting that I was a broken person in need of transformation. See, all four of those types of Christianity don't have to admit that. You say, I believe the right things. I'm in the right family. I'm part of the right culture. I go and do the right religious things. You can do all of those things and it can be a great trap to actually finding faith that transforms. I'm not certain where you find yourself in your spiritual journey. And I'm not here to condemn you if you find yourself in any one of those four things. 
I simply would urge you to listen to what James has to say and to consider what it might mean to open the door even more to the Gospel. Because I think what James would say is genuine faith is what I'll call, and I don't really like this term, but I you know, spent a week trying to find a better one and couldn't come up with it, so here we go, right? What I'll call personal faith. Now, we've abused that term in the church in some ways because we've made everything about me, and Christianity is far from everything being about you. But what I mean about personal faith is that it's personally transforming you so that you can be part of what God's doing in the world. Does this make sense? That you have not just heard, but you've welcomed, you've embraced, and therefore you are doing. So James is talking about a kind of faith that doesn't save. A kind of faith that is dead. What we'll call false faith. And then what he wants to do is he wants to turn and he wants to demonstrate a relationship between faith and what now he's calling works. So let's pause and define terms again. What does he mean by works? Now he's not just talking about um, Christian stuff, right? Like, you know what I mean by Christian stuff? Like religious stuff, like going to church, um, Bible reading. All Again, you hear me talk about those things in a seemingly negative way. They're not negative. Like, you should do all of them regularly, but if you're trusting them to get you across the finish line, there's a problem. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Right? Um, He's not talking about those things. He's talking about like transformed kingdom living. Does this make sense? Like doing, living the way of Jesus or living in a way that honors and glorifies God in all things. When James says works, he means doing the work of the kingdom. That's what he literally means. Does this make sense? So this is a relationship between faith and works, and he wants to try to figure out what that is. And so he, he wants to make two really important points about the relationship between faith and works. And uh, the first point that he wants to make is that they're inseparable. They can't be separated. Now, to make this point, he does something fascinating. and almost, It almost confuses us as modern-day readers. James is using uh, an ancient method of persuasive speech called a diatribe, right? Have you ever heard say, someone say, well, he just went on a diatribe? And what they mean is like, yeah, he's just ranting about something. That's not really what diatribe was uh, in the ancient context. Diatribe was a forceful way of speaking persuasively that oftentimes in, it included within it um, a hypothetical person who would ask questions, specifically questions that would be somewhat in opposition to what the speaker was saying so that the speaker could answer them and thus, in, in, in so doing, be even more persuasive, right? It's called, a, if you want to know a big word, it's called an interlocutor, right? So here we go in James. He invites in an interlocutor in, in his diatribe. So James is ranting, if that's what you want to say. He invites in a guy to ask a question so that he can answer the question. And the question that the man asks is, well, listen, this guy over here has faith and this guy over here has works. Isn't that fine? Right? Now, here's where it gets difficult because depending upon what translation of the Bible you're using, you have quotation marks that start and end at different places. Why? Because in the original language, guess what there wasn't? Quotation marks. Imagine that. There also wasn't punctuation, by the way. So depending upon what your translation perceives as the end of this person's question, 
is where they put the end of the quotation marks. Now, we use the NIV not because it's always right, but because it's the easiest to read. And guess what? Great news for you. In this case, the NIV gets it straight on correct, and the other translations don't. But it ends the quotation marks right after that first reality. You have faith, and I have deeds. Some of your translations will have quotation marks further on. It's an interpretive decision. My understanding is it's not the right interpretive decision. Because I think James is starting to answer with, show me your faith. So what this hypothetical person, this straw man, if you will, is proposing is that, hey, different people have different roles. This kind of sounds like Christianity, right? Different gifts. Someone's got the gift of works. And someone's got the gift of faith. And we're all kind of doing our own thing. And they're set, they can be separate in that way. Someone can be much more of a worker while someone is much more of a faither, right? And James sets this, you know, it's like a, what's the volleyball language, right? It's like a perfect set because James wants to spike, right? He wants to hit the ball as hard as he can. And he gives an answer and he says, yeah, you think they're separate? Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. What's he saying? They can't be separate. They are inextricably linked. That is, James is now shifting his definition of faith, right? He's got false faith, and he's got genuine faith. And now what he's saying is that genuine faith always has works. If it doesn't, it likely is not genuine faith. They are interwoven. But then James goes on further to say, uh, I think it's verse 22, if you can pop it up on the screen. He says, listen, faith actually works with works. Now, there's working together. And that Greek word for working together is the word synergeo. We get our English word synergy, right? James is proposing that they kind of they work together in synergy. What I would suggest to you is he means two things by this. The first thing that he means, he's kind of already explained, is that good works, working kingdom works, working for the kingdom proves genuine faith, right? It proves that genuine faith exists. But then he says something different here. He says, and his faith was made complete. The Greek word teleeon. It doesn't just mean like, you know, the pie is done, it's complete. It's kind of like finished, reached its ultimate point, the end part. That is that James is actually saying in some way your works spur on greater faith. Does this make sense? That your works perfect your faith. Now, I don't want to get the cart before the horse, but I feel like I need to say this now so that we don't get off track. There is an order to things. It sometimes seems like James is missing the order, but he's not. Faith comes before works. Genuine faith produces good works, or kingdom works, always, according to James. But James is now suggesting something he's already said in chapter 1. Do you remember? That when you hear the gospel, and you welcome it in, and you do it, what you actually do by doing it is give yourself even more opportunity to hear it, which allows you to welcome it in deeper, to do it. That is, it's cyclical. It keeps happening. It builds on itself. And James is using that same concept here. Do you see it? That when you hear the gospel and you welcome it in, that's genuine faith. What happens? You advance in in kingdom work. And when you're doing kingdom work, what's going to happen? You're going to keep hearing the gospel. Why? Because kingdom work is all about the gospel. As you're hearing it, you're going to be welcoming it even more. It's going to spur you on to even more works. Do you see this? 
I had, uh, had a conversation with a friend this week. Um, uh, this friend is going through a, a challenging season, uh, but this, this conversation was uh, strangely brought joy to my soul <laughs> because this friend was telling me about growth they're experiencing in their life, particularly as it relates to finding identity in the gospel apart from performance in their work. And as they were explaining it to me, I was hearing James talking. That taking steps of faith to believe the gospel to find my identity in God's performance for me, not my performance for work, even though everyone wants to define me by my job title or my performance by work. And what I'm actually doing, this person said to me, is it's actually giving me freedom. I'm able to breathe. And when I'm able, freedom actually means able to hear more gospel and respond more. Do you hear it? This is how it works, friends. That there's a synergetic, is that a word? I don't know. A synergetic relationship between faith and works. If you're a car person, maybe this illustration helps. Although, please, I don't know lots about cars, so there could be implications that make this analogy fall apart. Please don't blame me. Just hear it at its very basic version. Here's what I know about cars. If your battery is dead, you can't start your car. Correct? But if your car is started, what's happening to your battery? It's being charged, right? Faith is like the battery that starts the car. And as you're doing the work on the basis of your faith, it's actually charging your faith battery. There's this synergetic relationship. And if we don't understand that, then it will hinder us from the growth that James is calling us to. There's a relationship. Now James stops and he wants to make a deeply theological point now. So he brings up the concept of justification, right? specifically in relation to Abraham, credited to him as righteousness. So we need to pause again and define terms. What does the word justification mean? If you've been in the, the halls of the church for any length of time, you've probably heard this word before and have a, an idea of what it means. At its very core, it means uh, being declared righteous. Or I think even a better translation than righteous is being declared to have good standing with God. Right? being declared to be in good standing by God. Of course, we know that this happens how? Because of the work of Jesus on the cross and ultimately through His resurrection. Makes that possible. Paul reminds us that the righteousness of Jesus, that is Jesus standing with God, is given to us because Jesus freely takes on the penalty that we have earned. So James is invoking this idea, right? Declaration of of good standing with God. And he's asking the question, how do you get it? How do you get a good standing with God? Now here's where things get a little hairy, right? Especially if you're not willing to read James in James's context. James has a very specific answer. How are you justified? You are justified by works, not by faith alone. Now, we need to think about this because for, for many of us, especially if you've been part of Hope Alliance, we're with grace and faith. We talk about this all the time. You can't do anything to earn it. And all of a sudden, James says this, and we're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. James says, how are we justified? By works, not by faith alone. Now, this is fascinating. We have to ask ourselves a question. Who is James's teacher? Does James learn about justification from Paul? The answer is no. Where does James learn about justification? He learns about it from Jesus. 
where James gets all of his material. So let's think what Jesus says about justification. Matthew chapter 25. Tell me this isn't in James's mind when he's writing. This is what he says. Now, and I should pause before I get into this even and say, there's, there's just a few things about justification that we need to get clear on because they, they get confusing to us at times. That is that there is a such thing as what theologians would call positional justification. That is a position that you have even now. Um, so you are, God looks at you and says you're justified. Now, we need to say a few things about that before we go further. The first is, and really the only main thing to say about it is, Paul is very clear when he says that, that that status is given to you because you are, quote, in Christ. Does this make sense? That does not mean that God has justified you. That means that God has justified Jesus, and because you are in him, you therefore share in that justification. Right now. Make sense? And, and Paul is clear, and I think rightly so, that you carry that on through your life. But there's another way that justification is talked about in the Scriptures, and that is about the end, day, end of days. Right? Is that when everyone appears before the judgment seat of Jesus, uh, or the reward seat of Jesus, how will you be justified in that moment? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, what Jesus says, you're going to be justified based on what you do. You're justified on your works. Now, this is challenging for us, but let's read. This is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, right, end of days, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, I'll remind you again, um, and we'll get to this point, I don't think that James, Paul, or Jesus are in conflict at all. I think they're all saying the same thing. We'll get there eventually. But if somehow you believe there was conflict amongst the three, could I urge you to give Jesus the highest position, right? These are Jesus' words. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So we've got a separation going on. How does this separation happen? Uh, the sheep on the right, goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since before the creation of the world. How? Why do they get to come in? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. Exact language James likes to use, right? I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I was needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or as a stranger, or someone needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, 
you did not do for me. Again, I want to suggest to you, Jesus is not taking every particular example. He's speaking holistically in terms of a posture of living. So if you read that and say, Jesus is our King, how are we justified at the end of days before the judgment seat? It's on the basis of our works. This is not something James has invented or written up himself. But remember what James has said before we get too freaked out, right? James said, you are justified by works, not by faith. Correct? Incorrect. That's not what he said. He said, you are justified by works, not by faith alone. Right? So he is not making a point to say faith is not important to this. He's saying, if it's just faith, and if by faith you mean creedal, contextual, familial, religious, whatever, Christianity that doesn't have personal transformation, that ain't going to cut the mustard. James is saying you need both. And we ask ourselves, where does he get this from? And I would suggest to you, who is James' teacher? Jesus. Listen to another of Jesus' teaching from Matthew chapter 7. This is what he says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. So again, it sounds like Jesus is saying, just because you check the box and say, I'm God or I was resurrected or whatever, doesn't mean that's genuine faith that's going to get you there. There needs to be works involved in this. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus goes on. This is what he says. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? So what are they saying? Well, we did the works. We did them. Listen to what Jesus says. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evil doers. What is Jesus saying? <laughs> There's false faith on both sides of this spectrum, isn't there? There's false, false faith that just says the right truths about Jesus, but never has internal embrace of it, and therefore is dead. There's also false faith that says, look at all the things I do for you, Jesus. Isn't that good enough? And Jesus says, that doesn't work either. You need them both. And to make his point, James turns to no, none other than Abraham. Why Abraham? Well, Abraham is like the chief dude amongst the Israelites, right? He's the father of their nation. And if we look to him, then we can see things. I think, too, I don't have time to talk about it, but he's trying to push before the law a little bit, too. So, so James pulls on Abraham, uh, and, and this is why he does it. He wants to show that Abraham is justified by his works. Right? So he says, isn't Abraham, wasn't he justified when he sacrificed his son Isaac. Now, we don't have time to retell the story. Hopefully, you're somewhat familiar with it, or you can read it later on. Abraham was called by God. Uh, He was an old man. His wife was barren. God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham's like, okay. And And he's willing to follow God, even though everything in the world says it can't happen, right? And then eventually, God comes through, and his wife Sarah gives birth to a son, and then eventually when his son is, is significantly older, right, his teens, he says to Abraham, I need you to sacrifice this son. 
Uh, now, scholars have speculated on why he's doing it. Is God testing him? Uh, Abraham had kind of tried to do his own thing with, his, uh, with one of his servants to try to, to try to populate the kingdom God had. And God said, no, you're, that doesn't work. Right? So is this, is this a test? We really don't know. But what happens when Abraham goes, he, he believes it. The writer to Hebrews later tells us what he believes is actually that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead. Right? He so believed in God's promise of salvation that he was willing to put the very, the very thing that held it up tangibly on the line. And of course, as he went to sacrifice him, you remember the story, God intervenes. He stops him. And he says, he reaffirms the covenant to him. And James is pointing on that moment in Genesis 22 and says, see, he's justified by that. But that work happens not because Abraham just decided to do a good thing, right? It comes out of a deep belief in God's promises. So that Genesis 22 doesn't happen unless Genesis 15 first happened, where God offered this to him, and Abraham said yes. Now listen, Abraham was a super wealthy dude, living a great life, living his best life now in Ur of the Chaldees, right? And yet, somehow he believed that what God said was actually the truth to salvation in life. And in Genesis 15, James quotes, it was cre- his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So you're saying, wait a minute, Abraham said he was justified by his works, now he's saying he's justified by his faith? Yep, you get James now, right? <laughs> this is what he's saying. This is, this is how it works. And then he uses the illustration of Rahab, the prostitute who knew not much of God except that God was gonna, God's people were going to conquer the land and therefore He must be the Almighty God. And therefore, she did a crazy thing. She hit a bunch of spies, which certainly would mean her demise. Why did she do that thing that James says justified her? Because she believed that God was who God was. How do we know she believed it? Because she did the thing. How do we know Abraham believed it? Because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Genuine faith has works. Or as Jesus says earlier in Matthew chapter 7, right before the verses we quoted earlier, he says, listen, good trees produce good fruit. End of story. Bad trees produce bad fruit. End of story. Bad trees do not produce good fruit. Good trees do not produce bad fruit. Faith that is genuine produces works that prove and perfect our faith. So I think James would say, James would say we could define justification in this way. Justification is grace that is accessed or accessed by faith that always produces works. You see this? You say, wait a minute, you've introduced a new word, grace. I didn't introduce it. James talked about it from the, the jump straight. Do you remember? That, that, that true faith is what? Welcoming in the seed that is what? Implanted in you. It's passive language. That's something God did. He implanted it in you. That's grace. Grace happens first. He implants it in you. You welcome it. Genuine faith that leads to doing the Word. According to James, if you want to know if you have been declared to have a right status with God, these three things need to be evident in your life. Otherwise, it might be a false 
kind of faith. So we need to pause and ask the question, okay, fine, Adam, this all sounds great, but what about the elephant in the room? And I say, how dare you call the Apostle Paul an elephant? He might have had a large nose and been bald. Scholars think that's true. It makes me feel better about myself. But he's not an elephant. And it seems like he taught something very different than that. In fact, you might say, I can quote to you from Galatians and from Romans where Paul says, you are justified by faith, not by works. And I want to suggest to you that we have to understand context if we're going to make sense of any of this. That is that Paul and James are two very different people writing to two very different audiences asking two very different questions, both on the basis of Jesus' true teaching. You say, okay, fine. What is James asking? Here's the question James is asking. Is there a such thing as false faith? It's James's question. And the answer is a resounding yes. Well, then what is Paul's question? Paul wants to know, is there any way you can earn salvation or earn justification? And the answer is a resounding no. And when we try to force Paul's question into James' text, we're doing James a disservice. That's not the question James is asking. Likewise, when we try to force James' teaching into Paul's text, we're doing Paul a disservice because it's not the question that Paul is asking. See, if we put that, that, that slide about justification back up, here's the concern of Paul. Paul's deep concern is that we're going to flip this on its head, right? That we're going to say, okay, works leads to faith, which earns grace. Paul's writing to the Galatians, to the Romans, specifically those two, about that in a huge way. Specifically to the Galatians, because it was happening there. People were coming in and saying, no, 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 you've got to do things You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow these religious ceremonies. Otherwise, you, you're not going to be justified. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You're justified by faith alone. What did he mean? Did he mean the same faith James was talking about in chapter 2? No, he's talking about genuine faith, right? James is not concerned about people flipping this. He's concerned about people cropping off the last part of it. Does it make sense? He's looking to his audience that are scattered, they're new believers, they're scattered, they've heard this message of the gospel that liberates them. And he's worried that they're just going to sit there on that and not realize it's meant to do something, it's meant to change your life. Right? That they're just going to hear it and not do anything about that. They're asking two very different questions, but they believe the exact same thing. How do I know that James believes what Paul says? Because James says it in chapter 1. It's a seed implanted in you that you must embrace. If you don't do that, nothing else matters. Right? Grace, faith. But he's saying if it's real, it's going to produce works of the kingdom. How do I know that Paul believes what James is saying? Because if you read his letters, he says the same thing. He just doesn't major on it because it's not the huge question he's trying to answer. So when he writes to the Galatians, he says, listen, you're saved by faith alone. What are you messing around with? But then by the time you get to the end of the letter, he's saying things like, but you know, you better walk with the Spirit. <laughs> if you walk with the Spirit, you're going to produce all this kind of fruit. Right? In other words, like if you're changed, you're going to do something. Or in Romans, where he does 
literally exactly what James does. He quotes Abraham to make his point that you are justified by faith alone, no mention of works, right? But he goes on to keep saying things like this, like Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, well, so what should we do then? Keep on sinning? He says a Greek word, meganoito. May it never be. No way. We're different people. We're changed. We're bearing good fruit now. And he gets all the way to the climax in Romans 12, and he says, so there's only one thing you can do with this gospel. Give your lives to God and live differently. Or if we go to Ephesians chapter 2, which is one of Paul's later letters, when he's really kind of truncated his thoughts into nice, brief moments, this is what Paul says pretty famously. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. There he goes, right? Grace, faith. And this is not from yourselves. In other words, you have not earned this. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one should boast, right? You have not earned it through your works. But listen to what he says. We stop there, but listen to what he keeps saying. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? (laughs) Good works, right? In other words, if it's genuine faith, we're going to start doing the things that Jesus has called us to do. James and Paul are not in argument with each other. They're writing to two different people facing two very different kinds of questions using the exact same gospel to make the point. God has done something profound. He's rescued you. Something you could never do of your own accord. You say, good, how do I get some of that? Faith. You've got to trust it. And it's not just hearing it, it's welcoming it in to change who you are inside. It's giving you a whole new identity. How do I know? Because it's transforming you. And you're now living increasingly for the kingdom of God. Someone asked a profound question. He said, listen, how do I deal with the lifelong struggle of feeling like God's love and blessing in my life is directly related to my works? How do I replace the truth, they said capital T, with other truths? And I say to you, as lifelong as that belief has been for you, the process of counteracting it will be equally lifelong. And the only way that we accomplish it is if we get the right order of justification and if we continually, fiercely preach it to ourselves, catching each thought captive and correcting it with truth. If you want to ask, the most basic way you can answer how you're justified is grace. Because if it doesn't start with grace, you're, you're done. Okay, but fine. Grace, but then what? Faith, right? And a faith that produces works. So if grace is first, then what we've said is that God has loved you long before you ever did anything for Him and long before you even believed that He loved you. How do you counteract it? With the Gospel. This is who God is. Why do I belabor the point in talking for 45 minutes about works and faith and all of these things? Wasn't it just an issue James was trying to deal with then? I said, you know, this was not just a first century issue. These issues, the ones that Paul was facing and the one that James was facing, go right on into our modern day and will continue on. That is that we need to continually hear truth from James and Paul and ultimately the Holy Spirit because we tend to fall into one of two camps on either side of the Gospel. 
if we allow ourselves to be misdirected. One says, yeah, the gospel is true, but I've really got to do stuff. Otherwise, God isn't happy with me. So God is really happy with the stuff that I do. And so I'm going to keep checking the boxes and keep doing the things. And what you're doing is you're trying to do, 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 do without hearing and embracing. Right? You need to hear from Paul. You can't earn God's affection. Can't be done. In fact, God can't love you any more than he already does. How do you break the habits? By finding out just how much God loves you and letting it change you. Embracing it. Letting you work. There's an opposite side of the scale that a lot of people tend to fall on too. Right? And that is, well, God has done something incredible. And I'm set free. So I'm just going to live. And you need to hear from James. That it matters how you live. Not because you're earning something from God, but because genuine faith always produces kingdom work. And if that's not true in your life with some increasing regularity, then there should be some knee buckling that says, wait a minute, is my faith just hearing? Or have I actually welcomed it in? Why are these two counterpoints so important? Because the devil will do whatever he needs to do to corrupt the gospel. And the easiest way to corrupt the gospel is to change little pieces of it rather than trying to dismiss the whole thing. Right? Yeah, God took care of everything. You're fine. Or, well, yeah, God took care of everything, but look at you. Accusation, judgment, accusation, judgment, accusation, judgment. Whereas someone who is truly embracing the gospel, lifelong process, stands in the middle and says, I've been set free from God, but Jesus is my Lord and I follow him. This is what it means to have genuine faith. Pray with me.